Hey, this is Big J, and you're listening to another episode of Beyond Track Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Trek Podcast. I'm Big J with guest host Tay Phoenix, founder of Trek the Vote, connecting American Star Trek fans with nonpartisan groups working to ensure fair and equitable electoral processes. Today, we'll be talking to a very special guest. He has over 180 acting credits, 43 directorial credits, musician, astronomer, and political activist, who you may also know from a little known role on Star Trek Voyager as Tuvok. Tim Russ, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure being here, thank you. So let's get down to the first question that we've got for you. Uh, what got you into music and directing? Did this become your preferred creative outlet over acting? And did you have any inspiration from musicians like Louis Armstrong and directors like John Singleton? Uh, in fact, uh, musically, I started playing music when I was 16. Um, I was, uh, I grew up in the Air Force. My father was an Air Force veteran for 20 years. And uh, so we were moving all over the place. And when I went to a new uh, base, which was every two years approximately, over time, you know, I figured out, had to figure out a way or wanted to figure out a way to sort of fit in, you know, quickly and easily. And I was always looking for, I loved music and I liked, I loved uh, playing. My brother was a drummer. Um, at like 14 um, and he was playing in big orchestras. He was like sitting in with big orchestras and on the drums and he was very good. He still plays today. I started playing guitar when I was 16, uh, immediately took some lessons and then uh, put together bands and was playing in bands uh, almost my whole life off and on. So um, that, that started very early. Whereas uh, the directing business uh, came in when I was on the show, I just had an opportunity on Voyager to uh, intern on the show. and. Anyone who came from that uh, series franchise who wanted to do that had to do the same thing. We all interned basically for two to three seasons. Um, you know, everything from uh, observing other directors to coming in to production meetings, pre-production meetings, to um, watching some of the edited screenings with the producers, uh, to also sitting into editing sessions with the editors. And that's what I did for two, two, it was two and a half seasons or something like that before they gave me a shot to direct one of the episodes. and. Uh, and it really helped a lot to uh, to get familiar with the process um, uh, of how to do it and 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 all the 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 ins and outs the uh, the do's and don'ts and all that kind of thing and then beyond there you're on your own to go off and you know try to innovate or do things differently for each project. What was it like growing up on an Air Force base? That that was pretty interesting when you mentioned that part. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was difficult because it, I was very young. So um, during that time growing up, you're, those are the ages that you are, you are, you're very impressionable and you have, you're, you're coming into your own as, uh, as from, from childhood to an adult. And so there, uh, there's an impact that, that moving around like that has on you because you, you have to not only move to a new place where you've got to make new friends all over again. And uh, and hopefully we'll you know fit in and be accepted. Um, but also the fact that you you would people would leave you know uh, whatever relationships you established those people would leave all the time, or you would leave all the time. So there was only that you know on average a two year sort of span for relationships, and it was really um, and you didn't know when that would take place. Uh, you know you could be someplace where you really enjoy it and you're having a good time and you got friends and you got to leave. And that was not the easiest thing in the world to do um, for that many years. Um, and I think it shaped uh, my personality um, as, as an adult. And it certainly led to me becoming a, uh, an actor uh, down the line because there are elements that go with that kind of lifestyle growing up to the same kind of elements that exist doing this kind of business. Um, there is a security issue. There is the, the unpredictability of, of what's going around the corner, what's going to happen next. There's working with people very closely and then saying goodbye and not seeing them again. Um, all of those elements come into play, uh, being a, an Air Force brat, as it were. Very well said. So I want to talk real quickly about the military desegregation. Uh, the, the time you were there was after that. Did you ever encounter any lingering issues or biases while you were there? Um, well, it, for, for not so much for myself as for my, my parents. They did experience some of that stuff. Um, not 
and not entirely on on the bases it was more in the locations that we lived in sometimes we lived off base we lived in the suburbs of a city or something like that we weren't always on an air force base on the air force base not so much um my father rose in the ranks to colonel before he retired uh he was relatively successful as an african-american in the air force um and i don't know if the pace of his um of his ranking uh going up was was affected by him being african-american if he would have been any faster if he was caucasian i don't know um i never actually talked to him about that um but i do know that we we experienced in some of the places we lived yeah we experienced uh, that kind of thing we moved into a, a a neighborhood in omaha nebraska i remember and um you know uh the for sale signs went up because it was not uh, an integrated neighborhood at the time and uh people were selling their homes and we were only going to be there for a couple of years anyway because my dad was in the air force so but we did experience that and uh and so, and there were small moments and things that happened with my parents that were obviously the same way um so you know in that respect no but my father in terms of the, of being in the air force he did very well um he became a commander of uh, his unit um uh, eventually uh, overseeing ground communication so he did very well good so what got you started into astrophotography um I was not initially uh, into astrophotography. I was mostly into observable astronomy, which means most of the telescopes I had were designed for observing um, celestial objects as opposed to taking pictures and going into all that business. That's a um, up until recently, that's a fairly expensive and, and cumbersome um, uh, endeavor, especially because you have to use a lot of accessories and things and very expensive telescopes with really fine glass and things like that. Um, what got me into more of that now is the design of the new telescope. This the models of telescopes that have come out recently. The one I use is a unistellar EV scope. That did not exist a few years ago. Um, that is a very new technology. And what they've done is they've combined the telescope, which would be an optical telescope. Uh, it's a four inch mirror. It's not very big, but it's, um, it's an optical design. They combine that with a sensor, um, and that sensor can take images and layer them really, really fast. And that's the thing. If you're doing astrophotography in the, in the traditional way, you have to be out there for you know maybe several hours to get one image, um, whereas this telescope will layer them within one to two minutes. Uh, you will be able to have an image that's uh, like what I've posted on social media and things here and there that are just stunning. Plus the fact that is an optical, uh, if you're doing astrophotography, traditionally you have to be out of the city, you have to be in dark skies, you can't do them in the city. This telescope will actually take them in the city. Um, it is really easy to use. There's no, there are no accessories, everything is built in. It's a telescope and a tripod, that's it. Um, it uses a cell phone app. Everything about this telescope is revolutionary technology. And in a way, I must have been waiting for this to happen because uh, astrophotography has not been one of the things I wanted to pursue. But given the fact that this telescope came along, I was able to not only do some of that, but also, you know, naked eye observation through the eyepiece. It has an eyepiece built in. So I can actually see these objects in their entirety, uh, including the color uh, through the eyepiece um, in, in my backyard. I don't even have to go to the dark skies. Uh, I do sometimes because it's I get a, even a better image out there, but I can do it in my backyard for some of the objects that I'm looking for that I've never seen like that before with an optical telescope. It just it, it surpasses all of that. That is really cool. So, what's the most interesting object that you photographed in space? Um, I would you know then I'd, I'd say the the galaxies uh, to me are the most fascinating, um, more or less because of what they what they represent. When you realize what you're looking at, not only how far away they are, but how ma how massive they are and how vast they are, and that, that they're a galaxy like our own Milky Way. So there's that many more, you know, potential uh, exoplanets and stars in that galaxy, and thus the option or opportunity to consider, um, you know, uh, intelligent life as well. Um, when you see one of those, you are looking at such a massive collection of, of stars and planets that that and and the shapes of them as well um to me are the most one of the some of the most beautiful objects up there are are, are the galaxies 
So uh, those are my favorite to look at. Have you been keeping up with the James Webb Space Telescope? Yeah, I actually went to go to see it before it was uh, before it left um, uh, oh. the facility over here at uh, Northrop Grumman. It was in there being put together. They were actually folding it up, and the process of folding it up. And uh, and I talked to the scientists who were working on it. So, yeah, they're uh, they're just now testing it. They're just giving it test runs. They're collecting photons. They're just seeing how it's going to work. And it's in place. I think it was uh, deployed successfully. And that's the biggest thing about that telescope, because if it didn't deploy successfully, they would have nothing uh, and they could they would not be able to fix it. So they're very lucky. It's 20 years plus trying to get that thing together and what it's going to see and what it's going to uh, give us is the information it's going to give us is going to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I'm sure you're very excited to see what it comes up with. So like to do this. Let's go a little bit back into the acting career. What do you feel was your breakout role? Um, I think that when I first uh, started, when I first started, my biggest break was a feature film called Fire with Fire. It was um, Craig Sheffer and uh, Virginia Madsen. And uh, that was the that was a feature film role that was uh, done by uh, Paramount. It was Paramount Pictures at the time. And, and that that got the ball rolling for me because uh, from from feature film work, um, I worked with Walter Hill on Streets of Fire after that. And I worked on a couple of the project Crossroads. I worked with, um, uh, I can't remember the director's name, but I uh, did the, uh, the film Crossroads, Garof Macho was in it. I had to play blues guitarist Robert Johnson, ironically enough. Um, that Those two movies, once I was in them, I got to roll off into uh, television work from there. So I went from feature work to television work. And in the hierarchy of, of, of acting, typically the features are at the very top. Then there's television and then perhaps commercials and soap operas and things like that. It's, it's an unspoken rule or law, as it were. Um, as we say in this business, uh, there are no rules and they are strictly adhered to. Um, so everything, you know, sort of has a hierarchy in that. It's going to be easier for you to go from uh, features to television than it is to go from television to features. To break features that direction is very hard. So. Um, I was able to move quickly into television, which turns out to be more lucrative in the long run. You do a feature film, um, you get paid for the work that day or that week or whatever it is you're working, and then you have to wait you know, for the residuals, maybe two years, uh, two and a half to three years before the residuals start to roll in from it being uh, played in ancillary markets. Whereas on television, if you do an episodic, you know, very next season, they're repeating the show and they'll just keep doing it. So, you know, uh, there it's more lucrative to work in television. And at the time there was a lot of television work. There were TV movies, there were movies of the week, uh, all the series and things, a lot of them were shooting here in Los Angeles. Um, so there was a lot of work available. And, and it just, that, uh, the feature, the, the film role from, uh, from Paramount really got the ball rolling. Your agents take what you do and that's how they pitch you for the next project. And once you've been in a project, that like that uh all of a sudden you are validated you know by someone else so people will look to you as the you know the actor they want to hire you guys see it all the time you watch movies you watch tv show watch commercials and you'll see the same face popping up it keeps popping up once it's once somebody's in something all of a sudden oh wait a minute that that person was this and that or they're in a major feature film that's very successful and then you're going to start seeing them all over the place because that's what they do now, Fire with Fire was one year before Spaceballs. Yeah. And uh, going back to the to the TV part, I know that you've been in, in a lot of things, probably uh, plenty that we won't get a chance to talk about, but I want to tell you this story. So randomly one night, I am looking at those uh, like 90s television show openers, uh, done the 80s ones with cartoons. So... There was a show I used to watch back then called The Highwayman. So I'm looking at the opener, watching it, and a second before I clicked off of it, I see Tim Russ. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I don't remember him being in that. Well, I was real young, so I thought that was great. Where you never know where Tim Russ is, is going to is going to pop up. Yeah, Highwayman. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Glenn Larson. It's a Glenn Larson project. We it was the. I think that was the first series that I booked, um, television series, because before that I was working as a, a guest star um, 
um, and, and day player, guest star, that kind of thing. And that was the first series role that I had booked with the Highwayman. Whirlwind project, that one. Yeah. Yeah, tell you, tell you what. Well, so I wanted to ask, um, are there other unspoken rules uh, as an actor that you feel are notable? Um, and, well, I'll let you go answer that part. Not, not, not really any more than that one because there are that category, you know, under that category, there are several different elements that come into play. You know, as, as an umbrella, you know, that, that's an umbrella sort of, ca of category, the, the rule as it were, because there are other things under that that, that occur. It can, it can happen with uh, casting, it can happen with other things. There, there are just things that, that occur in the industry that, that are not written down. There's no handbook for them, there's no things they are not spoken, but you know they happen. Um, I'll tell you another one, it's called, that's contamination. Uh, that's the word that we use. If you work as an actor on a series project for one network, it may be harder for you to get a series role on another network because you have been contaminated. You are already, you've already been on a show. So if, so another network gonna want a face that they can identify with their own show, not somebody's face that identifies with another show. So that can, it doesn't always, but it can happen. Um, and, and with Trek in particular, when I got done working on Trek, I was, uh, I didn't, and I didn't want to really work for a little while. I was done, I want to take a break, but it was about two or three years before I could get back in the wheel again, because I had been on Voyager for seven years. You've been exposed. Your face has been out there. So it's very difficult um, and tricky to get on another show because those other producers want faces that are new um, for TV, especially um, that are not identifiable. So when people are watching it, they don't go, "Oh, that's what's his name from Blaggedy Blah." They don't. They don't want to hear that. You notice commercial actors once they've done a lot of commercials and they're on they're on a campaign of commercials, and you don't see them on regular TV shows almost never. Um, if you guys have been watching, you don't see. What's her name, Chloe from Progressive? You don't see her on movies and TV shows doing guest star leads or anything like that because she's so identifiable as Chloe. That's the unspoken rule. They could just as well. She's extremely talented. They could put her on any comedy, but they, because she's, you know, uh, she's on that commercial all the time, it's very hard for they, people always going to see her as that and not as this other character that, that they want to bring to life on their own personal projects. So there's just a few things that fall under the umbrella of, of rules <laughs> that exist that are not spoken. Do you, as a follow-up, I, I just wanted to ask, do you feel that there are unwritten or unspoken rules that are specific to being a person of color or very specifically to being a black actor um, that you have noticed? Not, not so much. In fact, um, in fact, right now, that's almost a, it's almost a revolution, um, and we've seen it. Uh, when I was growing up, there were no commercials with interracial couples. Not happening. Nobody was going to put a, a nationwide project, a product, on a commercial with interracial couples. Now you see them. Uh, you see gay couples. You see interracial couples. You guys have seen them a lot. Not just a few. A lot. Um, television shows, interracial couples, gay gay themes on television shows. There's been a lot of, 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 of African-American roles are now running non-traditional, mostly because of Hamilton, I believe is the, is the impetus for that. But you see a lot of shows where they're casting middle uh, projects that take place in, in medieval times and they're casting African-Americans, Victorian times, African-Americans in lead roles. You never would have seen these characters in there before. Right now, we are, it is, it is, it is ramped, I'd say 30, 40% in favor of, of African-Americans being cast leads, full-on cast, full-on series. When I was, again, started in the business, there were, there were only a couple of comedies with full-on black casts. They weren't casting dramas, is that? They certainly weren't casting romantic black actors, lead male black actors in anything. Um, only a couple of actors now and then would step out, Denzel and a few others, but otherwise you didn't see them. They didn't put blacks in those types of roles. Um, you know, for obvious historical reasons. So now, now you see it a lot more. You see full-on cast. They just did Wonder Years, and now they have a black actor playing the lead role in Wonder Years. They've rebooted the whole thing with a black lead actor. They've done that on a couple of other shows as well. They, 
it is changing right now um, as we speak. Um, and I am absolutely thrilled to see it. Uh, I think it's great. And they could, in my opinion, diversify those casts even more, you know, with other ethnicities as well. You see a lot more East Indian actors. You've noticed that over the last, what, 10, 12 years? Now you have a lot more East Indian actors making the inroads into all these different projects. It's happening. It's happening. You mentioned earlier about that look, that look that networks want to distinguish with their show so that the audience isn't relating that to another show you're on. And you brought us something that I thought was interesting that relates to that. I don't recall if it was Spencer for Hire or A Man Called Hawk that Avery Brooks was in the bald look goatee he got on ds9 and they wanted him to have hair and to shave that because they did not want to associate him as an actor to uh, to that show but also he looked too urban right now is that something that you've seen or come across as well that you get cast in a show or in a role and they want you to be less black uh no i mean i haven't I haven't run into that, and uh, and again under the unspoken rule umbrella, you might something like that could happen, and I would not know about it because I might read for a role, and they might say, "Well, he looks to this or to that," um, and I would never know. They're not going to tell your agent anything about that, you know, if that's their decision. It could be one person in the room, you know, or two in the room that say, "Oh no, he looks to this or looks to that." And typically, if I read for something, I can tell by the part, you know, if I am going to look right for that role or not physically, just by the description of the role. Um, if it's a character that grew up in the street or in the hood or, or you know, that's rough around the edges or he's a bad guy, yeah, okay, well, that look, that look will work fine. If it's somebody who's sophisticated, who's uh, uh, metro, who's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lawyer, doctor, something like that. So, yeah, then I might not, you know, I, if I look a certain way, I'm not gonna, I may or may not have a shot at that role at that time. So that's the way I look. I did, you know, after Voyager, I shaved my head pretty much and had a goatee. So I didn't, you know, I worked on some gigs based on that look. Um, but there were probably other roles that I didn't get because at the time I had that look. And just to go back to what Tay was talking about earlier, that's the acting aspect in terms of African-Americans is not, you don't run into the discriminatory element of that um, in, 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 a, in, the, in the broader sense, you don't really run into that kind of thing. Where you run into it is in the directing and in the producing and in the decision-making. Those are the areas where minorities are still not integrated that much at all. Very few African-American directors. Women coming along, there are more women directing now than there were when I started out, 12, even 20, 15 years ago. Um, quite a few more now, but they had to make inroads as well. It's those parts, those are the gigs that are the hardest for minorities to get into, um, above the line, directing, and then producing and things like that, and, and even into the network, into the decision making, the green lighting of projects. There's not, a, I mean, except for Oprah or Tyler Perry, you know, you can count them on one hand um, uh, uh, that have the power to green light a project. Um, Spike is going to be able to do it. Uh, Jordan Peele, they make uh, a breakthrough because they make a project that gets a lot of critical acclaim and makes a lot of money. Um, as soon as you do something like that, yeah, you've got the door open, but you've got to kick that door open. You're not going to get uh, easily get the opportunity to get behind the camera um, if you are a minority. That still exists today, and you're not going to have uh, uh, the ability to climb, uh, you know, uh, up the ladder in terms of the studio system if you are a minority for making into the into the management and decision making uh, of the of the actual companies, whether it's Netflix or Amazon, or anything like that, there's African Americans at the top of those companies making those decisions. That that ceiling is still there, uh, very much. Yes, Tay. So I was I want to go back to this this question of the look for a moment. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned recently is that Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman. Um, and Michael Piller conceived of the the Kazon very early on, right, uh, as a metaphor for gang rivalries in LA. 
Um, and they were portrayed by many white actors who used makeup to darken their skin. They gave them textured hair. I was wondering if, if you had feelings about that at the time or if in retrospect, what you think of that? No, not really, because, you know, Trek has always been a vehicle for uh, more or less uh, based on what Gene was looking forward uh, to was conceptually uh, working out our differences as humans between each other, using humans and aliens as foils to carry out these storylines, to, to, to deal with and wrestle with all the, the different sort of cultural issues we have with each other and how we communicate with each other, how we get along with each other, how we work out our differences with each other. That's what, I mean, and the Kazon at the time, at the time, my only gripe was, you know, that, uh, you know, the characters were looking for water. And I was like, you know, they're spacefaring. How in the world would they not be able to find water? That was my issue. That was my issue. I never thought uh, of that. Yes, exactly. Until uh, now, wow. Yeah, it's my pet peeve with any, generally any sci-fi movie, and even generally with a drama that, that, that you know, you got to close the holes, man. You got to, if you're going to come up with a concept, you got to make sure the holes are closed. So that... That was a little strange because you're spacefaring, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're, then they, they were using more than impulse power to get around and to do that. You, you probably figured out the water problem. Um, that, you just that, ruined the first couple seasons of Voyager for me. Unwatchable. The most, the most prominent element in space is hydrogen. That's the universe is full of hydrogen and that's the main element of water. So you'd be able to pull that out anywhere you go in the universe so that would not be a problem if you know so it did but the issue of the way they looked and and what they and what they uh what their their whole thing was that did not bother me at all at the time they were one of hundreds of alien races that they put together for a storyline and those guys are about writing stories that's all they want to do is write and tell stories so you know didn't bother me i mean here i was the first african-american vulcan on the show for god's sake so that's saying something and surprisingly enough even some trek fans have found it difficult to believe that there would be an african-american vulcan um i usually had to put them straight on all of that you know and the first full-blooded vulcan lead in the full yep first full-blooded vulcan lead yep yeah so they you know we we're stretching out they stretched out with the first female captain so you know uh yeah it didn't that did not that did not bother me in the least. Uh, like I said, my only issue was the storyline that they gave them. <laughs> oh, that's that's excellent. So, uh, Tim, being a black father, you talk about that for a little bit. Being a black father can be its own unique experience, and it can be different from others in many ways. I, I can tell you that as a black father. What does being a black father in today's America mean to you? Well, it, I think it depends on the circumstance um, of, of, of being a father, what, what, what uh, the relationship is that you have with a child's mother um, and, and whether your child is a, a male or female. Um, I think if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're raising a son, there's gonna be some issues um, with that potentially down the line. We know, you know, based on what's happened recently with the, the police shootings and things like this, that I would be concerned about that. You know, I might be concerned about, based on what part of the country you live in, if he would be, you know, jogging through a neighborhood and accosted by three guys in a in a pickup truck, you know, and killed. I would have issues and be and have concerns about something like that if I was raising a son, right now in this day and age, and living in certain places here in Los Angeles, not an issue. I don't have to worry about that. Um, um my i have a daughter i don't have a son so i'm not worried about you know her being shot and killed you know uh, because of a traffic stop or something like that so uh i think it would depend on what, on what whether you had a boy or girl and also what part of the country you lived in i think that would it would have an impact otherwise for myself it hasn't been uh, it has not been an issue my daughter is mixed uh her mother is caucasian she's british um, and the only thing I run into generally for that is that if she's working, she has worked in the business as well. So it's difficult for her to get, I think in some cases to get some roles because she's, she's ethnically ambiguous, but she skews a little lighter skin rather than darker skin. So it's, uh, they will tend to, if they're looking for somebody who's a uh, mixed race, they might go with somebody who's a little bit darker rather than lighter skin, just cause it, it pops on the screen a lot quicker and easier. 
And so she's, I think, run into that every once in a while, um, that she might look too close to somebody Caucasian. So, you know, but as far as fatherhood goes, for me, it's easy. It, there's, there's not a problem. It's not an issue. I, I, again, I can only speculate, you know, what other uh, African-American fathers might be feeling out there with sons living in other states um, where these issues with the police and, and, uh, and or random attacks might be the case because all of that is on the rise. Uh, as we well know, um, the police shootings are, have been on the rise, and also the uh, the, the uh, attacks on minorities uh, from African Americans to Chinese are on the rise, uh, simply because our our politics have changed and um, and culture wars have been you know um, brought to the forefront. So, and I've had the same discussion with my older son. Uh, he's mixed. And I've, I've told him, you really have to be paying attention to what's going on these days and how things are happening. Yeah. You're going to be able to get by just a little easier because you, you've got that, that mixed complexion. You're not going to complexion, you're not going to pop right out. Yeah. Uh, my daughter, uh, she's a little bossy one, let me tell you, but I want to ask you something. How do you handle a mixed girl's hair? It's killing me. It's, it's just like its own entity. Have you, as a, as a father with a, a mixed girl, is the hair also challenged for you as well? It was when she was younger, yes. Absolute nightmare, 100% <laughs> nightmare. Um, it, it was a tangled mess of, it was just, it was, it was impossible and it was really difficult and she was always miserable when we had to deal with it. <laughs> now she deals with it on her own. Um, she's got all the tools and things that she needs to make it happen. So at one point she wore it straight. She got it all straightened out mm -hmm. and it was a lot easier then, but it's, it causes a lot of damage to the hair. So she stopped doing it. Now she's got it back to the way it was originally. And she wrestles with it and deals with it on her own. She's 22. So it, it's all her now. I don't have to deal with it. Um, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, she, we had a low oh boy growing up. Yeah, that was, that was not pretty um not at all uh, and it's just it's just genetics genetics it's the way it goes you know um yeah and, and she's to... seven so and i oh, got yeah. fired from doing her hair by her oh yeah oh yeah well I, i've been there man i was there <laughs> believe me i was there i can hear you man. i feel your pain <laughs> well, thank you I, I appreciate that no no, i feel like we've really got the connection there oh with yeah the uh, the hell of the mixed <laughs> girl's hair which I I asked her earlier today, you know, because I I have none, no hair of my own, and I asked her. I said, "Hey, can I have a little bit of your hair?" She said, "No." I said, "But I want some of your hair. I'm gonna I'm gonna look good." She said, "Well, Daddy, even though you're bald, I think you're still handsome." <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't sure if there was an insult in there somewhere, real subtle. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's yeah. good at that. Mm, mixed references, <laughs> yes, of course. Mixed innuendo, yeah. There you go. Uh, so here's here's another thing I've, I've got for you. You mentioned the importance of directing yeah. for diversity. Yeah. So when you directed, did you find that there were an, an uneven uh, treatment or distribution of that? Were, were you more challenged as a director just because you were black. Did you get this feeling that you weren't being treated the same as as a non-black actor, or maybe not as trusted? Oh no. Um, in fact, no. The, uh, the the projects that I worked on it, 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 that has not risen as an issue. The on, the, on when I directed Star Trek, uh, the episode that was there was none of that either. As a matter of fact, the the, the executive producers didn't even come to the set. Uh, the first day that I was was working, they they never visited the set to see to look over my shoulder to see what I was doing to watch what was happening. They didn't even come there. They were busy working and they trusted that I could get the job done, and that was it. Um, I think subsequently, subsequently, I think the um, I I was trying to get a second slot before that show went off the air, and it was sort of near the last couple of years, so it was tricky to get another slot. And I think that the uh, supervising producer at the time. I didn't get along with as well 
um, uh, she was kind of uptight and had an attitude about things sometimes. So I don't, you know, some of us didn't get along with her that well. And I think that that might have affected my ability to get a second slot before the, before the show went off the air. Um, and that may have been more political than anything else. But, but uh, that project since, and since that project, I have not noticed that, that there would be any lack of, uh, of respect uh, for what I was able to do. Um, because in all the projects that I worked on, I was, you know, I brought those projects in under budget and on time and, um, and, and the producers were happy with the results. So was, uh, for them, for the most part, you know, once you're on there and you know what you're doing and you, and it's obvious that you know what you're doing, uh, to everybody, they're going to know in the first, you know, hour of what's happening, they're going to know by the first rehearsal of the scene. And the DP is going to know just by what you want to do for the shots. And, and when you're calling those shots, they're going to know if you know what you're doing or not. And that's going to be more critical than whether I was uh, African-American or not. Is, is, is when you're on set, they're going to know if you know what you're doing. If you're wavering, if you're wishy-washy, if you, you know, you're changing your mind back and forth all the time, you can't make up your mind or you made, you know, you forgot to do this or forgot to do that. They're going to know uh, very quickly. And, and that's going to be more detrimental to you trying to get the job done than anything else. The hardest part, again, is now just trying to get, um, get the slot to do the project. And uh, what I've done mostly is feature films, pilot presentations, feature films, uh, independent films since leaving Voyager. And so those, the, the issue I run into that with that is not you know, whether or not somebody wants, is interested in having you shoot their project. The problem is whether or not their project actually goes anywhere or actually takes off or they get they get funded or they don't get funded. And that's usually what the case is. So for myself, um, I'm developing my own scripts and my own projects now with several different producers. So and that's the direction that I want to go um, from this point forward. Uh, I'm more interested in being on the ground floor and on the foundation of these projects and, and starting them and working on it and developing them and then getting them off onto the road and uh, hopefully being behind camera on them as well. I don't really enjoy the producing aspect of projects. I don't really like producing. It's a lot of paperwork and whatever. It's really not my interest. My interest is shooting. So story and, and directing are the things that I want to get behind people on um, and, and on my own projects on at this point forward. And then I would have in those situations, I would have, you know, I would be coming in at that level where people expect you to know what you're doing and would give you that uh, that respect. You don't have to beg for it or whatever. So. I do want to ask you more about your projects before we get yeah. too far ahead, your projects and scripts. But I'm curious, what were the differences you experienced from being in sci-fi television or movies as opposed to a production geared more towards the younger audience like iCarly? Oh, um, well... You know, the the uh, iCarly came about three was it three years three years after Voyager after I finished working on Voyager it was three or four years later that I ended up booking uh, iCarly and subsequently uh, working with uh, uh, on on a show called Samantha Who with Christina Applegate which was also a comedy um, so I did both those projects I was doing them at the same time and um, it 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 kind of is if you will pardon the word a logical sort of transition i went from doing this heavy space drama to to doing comedy and again it took four or five years for that to happen because coming off the project the unspoken rule as we mentioned earlier is recreating yourself you have to recreate yourself you step back and let people forget what you did let you let them forget what's going on and all the new projects come in you come back out and step out in a different role i.e i carly or samantha who now you're a different character and they've forgotten about voyager it didn't happen right after i got off the show it took four or five years um, of not working that much at all until those breaks came into being and that's how this business works and you've seen it before you've seen actors disappear and then all of a sudden they come back um john travolta is a perfect example and yeah, he disappeared and then pulp fiction bang he's all back like you know on, on like gangbusters so all of these things, these occur that, again, it's the unspoken rule. And it's just, you know, the way that the ebb and flow of this business works. 
So doing the comedy was not a, I'd done comedies before I had done uh, Voyager. So I'd already had experience doing sitcoms and it was just a matter of taking that role and playing it. I mean, he's a principal and he's on the right age and it worked out that, uh, that uh, Schneider liked uh, the work that I did and, and it just happened, you know, I went in and read for it, they liked it. Uh, and, and, and the same for Samantha Who. Yes, Tay. Um, I wanted to ask you, so obviously you're working on stories and I don't want to pressure you to put out any details you don't want to, but I'm fascinated that you're working on scripts. Is there anything that you could share with us? Well, I can tell you that uh, one of the projects I'm working on with a producer named John Mocked is a big sci-fi action adventure. Um, it takes place in a, a star system that we are familiar with in terms of actual astronomy um, called Proxima 7. And um, we are putting that project together. It's a science fiction sort of, um, I want to say, a labor and management sort of type of storyline. Um, so it's very interesting the way it is. It's a big action adventure sci-fi. Um, and that's something that he is very much interested in doing. So we put the story together. And right now we're working on all of the storyboards for it, which would be all the special effects uh, samples, all the ships, all the things like that, the tech that's gonna be in it um, and the characters. So we're putting that together now. I'm working on a biopic that takes place in the early 1900s, which is um, features a lead male African-American character who was an actual hero, an actual character that existed at that time and all of the, the journey that he had in his life. And it's an absolutely unbelievable journey um, you could not just make it up. Um, if, you, if you read his story, his story is phenomenal. So it, and it writes itself. Um, and I've just finished the script, uh, the third draft of that script. It just completed a, uh, about a month ago. So I'm now trying to get that market to get some people in their hands and to see if they can, if they're interested in that. Um, and there's a supernatural thriller that I, that I'm working on with someone that they want to shoot sometime later this year um supernatural drama thriller uh, and and also a an african-american uh, producer wants to do a show called tops which is a um, feel-good inner city new york city harlem sort of feel-good uh film uh, it's a really cute story uh about a uh, about a neighborhood and uh a character who's one of the characters who wants to who's threatening to gentrify uh, some of the elements of this neighborhood and the people who are resisting that. Um, and it's a cute story. It's got to do with a street game that people play, uh, the kids play at that time. So it's very cool. So there's about four projects that I'm working on with different producers to try to get uh, on the road. Um, and once they're, if we're, if once they take off in development, then that, then I would have those, they would be posted on IMDb and you'd be able to see, you know, some of the artwork and some of the other things that are going on. So as a, uh, as a fellow musician and also a storyteller, one of the things that I have found is that my understanding of music and the way that music can flow through a piece has really helped me understand narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if, if that shows up for you and if so, how? If it shows up for me and what? And what? In, in, either as a director, as a writer, is there understanding the way that music can move through a story or help move a story? Absolutely. Is that something that you, yeah. yeah I'd love it, to hear more about that. Absolutely critical. Um, critical and also I want to say it's 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 this form of magic it's it's a form of alchemy if you will um, which baffles me even today um, because you take uh, the writer writes the script and then you have the director and the actors take that script and put that on the screen image take they take the words off the page and make an image out of it and then you hand it to the editor who's going to cut the story together and they're going to have their sort of input because they're probably their objective and then you're going to have the, the the composer take all of that once you've cut it together and then put a score on it and that has to come out of nowhere now you can give the composer you know here's here i'd like this to have a of a folkish sort of feel i'd like it to be uh i'd like it to have a celtic folk feel i'd like it to have a country folk feel i'd like it to have an r b sort of groove i'd like it to be more what i've used in the past as what i prefer in some cases atmosphere not necessarily music but atmosphere i'd like a pulse over here i'd like this to be nothing here i'd like this to be completely empty you can go over and spot the whole project once it's done with the composer and have put it together but i'll tell you 
you know, they a lot of times if I uh, projects I've worked on before, I said I said I'd like a theme, I'd like a recurring theme, and we know um, ET has a, a recurring theme, uh, the Lost the Raiders of the Lost Ark has a recurring theme, that melody, that theme that's going to recur, that hook, uh, I'd like that. That's got to come out of nowhere. I can't exp I can't ask and describe what that's going to sound like. That's just got to come out of the writer's imagination and 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 talent. Uh, to, to make this piece, to bring this piece to life. You know, that moment when the character breaks out and, and does this thing, that the climax that occurs, the, the decision that this character makes, the journey that they make, the montage that we have to roll with, all that stuff has got to come from the writer. And let me tell you, that's, that is a hell of a process um, because you have to rely on the composer to come up with that. You have to rely on them to come up with that. You can only give them maybe some guidelines, you know, but they have to look at the film and feel what that's going to be. And boy, I've seen a lot of work that's just done very, very, very well. Very rarely do you get one that just, you know, when you listen to it and man, you're just thinking, man, where did they get that music from? Or why did they choose that track for that bit? You know, even if it's transition from one scene to another, I wonder why they chose that piece of music and did it work? You've heard pop stuff before. What was it? The uh, one is it Soho? What's the movie that uh, Netflix? Uh, Soho Night One Night in Soho. What's that one? It's out right now. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm it, blanking on it. It has that movie. I'll look has, that one up. Yeah, okay. Soho. Uh, Matt Smith is in it from Doctor Who. Um, that movie has a lot of tracks in it, songs mm -hmm. that are kind of different each one, and they slot them in there, and it's very interesting. Because when you hear them, at first you might think, wow, does that, does that right? Does that fit? And then you think after a few bars, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Oh, yeah, that works. Where they just slot in this track. And this track is a, is a song. It's not, it's not orchestra, orchestral score. It's a song. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tune. It's a, it's a music piece. You don't even, I didn't even know if they were you know, pre-recorded, if they were songs from the past, or if they were already pop songs, or if they were originally written for the movie. But you know, they, they was interesting the way they slot them in. That for the music supervision, the person who's doing all the music supervising and things like that, and the director are going to decide, well, they like this track or that track for this thing, as opposed to the score. The score is a composer sitting there, man, and putting in the strings and putting in the synth or putting in the whatever it might be under the scene and bringing it in right at the moment where the character has to make a decision or there's a something happens to the character or whatever. And that is just pure magic. There's something about that that I just... It's alchemy. That's all I can explain it. You have these incredible talents all coming together, you know, that are these these rare elements in, in and of themselves, like silver and gold and copper, to try to make gold, to try to make diamonds, try to make, you know, something that that that's just this pure thing from all these different inputs and all these different creative out, uh, uh, talents. It's just it's remarkable to me that any of this stuff ever gets done at all. <laughs> Really that, that was last night in Soho. Last night in Soho. There it is. I believe that's the one we just saw recently. I watched recently. Very good movie. Um, and I thought um, it was interesting. I think they had all some very interesting music stuff in there. And like I said, once in a while, I've heard some things. Um, Blade Runner, the new Blade Runner that was out, uh, the, more, the more recent one, had some very strange orchestral things going on there. That uh, score, you know, that that just was i seemed out of place to me i don't know i was just watching the movie and all of a sudden this giant huge sound comes on the you know out of the speakers and the character's just walking across a i don't know a, 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 a just walking across a field or something it's there was nothing that it was there was nothing happening but the score sound it was so big and so grand but it was nothing on the screen that was grand. So it was very weird to me. Um, and it stuck out when I watched it. I remember it stuck out. I remember it right now, in fact, which tells you that it stuck out. So um, Hans Zimmer was the composer on that Hans, one. And I like Hans Zimmer's work. I've liked his work in the past. But if you saw that movie, there's a couple of places where the lead character is walking. I don't know. He's walking across that area with all those giant statue heads. and and. And I don't know why the sound was so big. It was just, <laughs> and he did it a couple of times in the movie where there was nothing happening on the screen that was that big. Um, it was very, very strange, it was very weird. So I don't know, I can figure all that out. I wanted to ask you too, so I, 
we were able to find a small snippet of a production of Dream Girls that you were yes. in. Yes. Um, and I also, you know, we saw that you did on uh, NCIS New Orleans. You, they had you come in and play music there. Oh yes. And I was wondering, like, I mean, so you've done these pieces of, of musical theater, of music in in television. Right. Is there a dream project for you that that you, in terms of combining your musicianship and your work in film and television? Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I would love to work on um, a musical film, you know, a musical story. I would love to do one of those, uh, even if it's on stage. I would enjoy that just as well. As an actor, I've always wanted to do a musical. I've done a couple of them in the past, but I've, I've always enjoyed the platform. I've always enjoyed the sound and the style of those. Um, if it's a, a, a piece that involves musicians, involves music as a feature film story, I would enjoy that very much. And one of my favorite roles in, in recent years has been the NCIS episode, because we shot that live. That was not played back to sync. Um, and that's why when I was cast in the role, I had to play guitar. I had to record myself playing and singing blues in order for them to hire me. Um, I recorded the stuff, sent on the tape, and we had. To, I went to New Orleans. I worked with New Orleans musicians in the studio for seven hours. The day I got there, or the next day I got there, we worked on all the songs. We did record the tracks because there were other shots in this in the story that where they where they had the music had to be in the background. So we recorded all that stuff, and then we went on the set and actually played in that club. All those we did played all those tracks two or three times live, and they ended up using them. Um, and that was pretty amazing because that normally doesn't happen normally they just they just shoot to playback you know that's the easiest way to do all that um and the director didn't want to do it the producer wanted to do a, a live thing so um that is when why i still play music it's why i continue to play guitars why i continue to stay active in music because those moments can arise and it's like a, it's like it can happen in the next 10 seconds that an opportunity like that rolls by and you're able to step up and do it. If I hadn't been playing guitar for all those years, I hadn't been up to my game and on par with it, I wouldn't have been able to book the role. And that's work. Um, and it's very enjoyable work. So yeah, it, 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 it definitely, I, I would enjoy doing a project that was, that was music based. Almost did one a couple of years ago with a guy that uh, was doing an independent science fiction musical put together this huge monstrosity of a project um and i had to sing a couple of the tracks uh did the vocals for a couple of the tracks um he did some of the music for them and he was trying to get it together it never got off the ground but that's what he that's what he wanted to do and you know that's what he was working on so yeah at some point in time it'd be great in 1997 you directed an episode of voyager whose central theme was about how historical revisionism could perpetuate false narratives Right. It, it's now a new phenomenon, but we're seeing a lot of that happening now in some segments of politics in the media. How do you think this era is going to be remembered in a few decades? Wow. How is this era going to be remembered? Well, that's a good question. Um, let's see. Well, I, I would hope that this era would be remembered in history class political science classes and things like that as as um, as a lesson um for how tenuous our democracy is um and it, and i and it was that was i was very lucky to draw that story because i could have gotten a you know a dog for the story i could have gotten something that was not that interesting i was very lucky to draw that story i had no choice in it they just give you what it is and i was very lucky to have it because I'm, I'm i love history i'm a, a history buff and i and i think it's so important to learn from history um, and the story being a, that story that I directed was about revisionist history. It's about the perception of, of what might have happened a, a long time ago, affecting how the cultural relationships exist today. And what we have now, what's happening now, is a result of what has happened in the past in our own history. Our country is very, very, very unique. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, we, we in, in a relative a relatively modern age of civilization, we had slavery for centuries. And uh, whereas other countries, most other countries did not have it for that period of time. So, so it's a very fascinating thing that we, this upheaval of, of, of the social and cultural sort of norms that we've been dealing with um, have come to pass as they are. Um, as I was growing up, we had a very difficult time in the 60s and 70s 
Um, I lived through the times of, of, of uh, civil rights and also the Vietnam War, and it was just this outcry against the Vietnam War. And th those were that was a policy. It wasn't a culture war. It was a policy. And so you had both sides. What we have today is we we have today is is this our democracy is under threat because we we have we cannot we don't communicate on the same level of reality. We don't communicate with the same facts. We believe one side believes in alternative facts and the other side believes in reality. And th this has never happened in a modern society that I can recall. Yeah, I mean, yes, there's state-run media like uh, uh, Russia's had and China, Korea, and uh, Hitler and the Germans. They had state-run media where they just put out their version of what was happening and you either went along with it or you didn't. But that was not a democracy. Within a democracy, there's always been debate over issues but based on a common ground of facts and reality. And we don't have that now. So this, this time is absolutely one of the most pivotal points in our history that we are living through right now. All of us are living through this point in history that, that is about, that could threaten the very foundation of the entire country um, and, and the lies of everybody in it because simply because of the, the, the spreading of disinformation and the denial of facts and the denial of reality. And man, that is a tough nut to crack. You know, imagine yourself uh, writing the constitution uh, for a country as to how a country will be governed that has to apply to 270 years from now. Imagine sitting down and trying to write that document right now. And it has to apply 270 years from now. That's what our founding fathers did. Oh yeah, yeah. Could they could imagine the way we live today and all the changes in our culture and society? They did built into the constitution. They built in the malleable elements of it. They built in the flexibility. They built in the fact that it can morph and adapt to the changes in the culture, which they could never have foreseen how dramatic the changes are. But they did and it works. It still works today. And most of the developed nations, they still work today in the democracies. So what we have is the major, major challenge to that very core concept, to deny the reality, to deny the actual facts and information. There is no discussion, there is no debate, there is no anything to do with an issue if the two sides cannot agree on a common set of facts. And I don't know, for honestly, I don't know how you can counter that. I just don't know how. The only thing, only way I, I can see it is if people become more aware, you know, of what's going on. And the more aware of what's going on, and aware of what what the facts and the truth are, those that crowd, that group of people, um, can stave off this this sort of cancer that's that's taking over. It's it's a cancer and it's spreading. So I'm I'm hoping that first of all we have to get over this hurdle. Um, and sort of get this the country back on track. And in the future, I'm hoping that they look back on this moment in time and ask all the pertinent questions and wonder why we did what we did and ask how did that happen and perhaps not make that mistake again. And we've only got a, a year or two before we are challenged with making that mistake again. You know, handing the keys over to, the, to, 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 to entities that want to drive the car back into the ditch. So uh, very, very difficult um, time that we are going through, man. I mean, you, you guys are aware that I post up all the time and uh, it is very important to me. Uh, I've, been, I've been around for long enough and I have a point of reference. I've seen the country tear itself apart before and for obviously for different reasons. This reason is, this reason is profoundly different than what I grew up with, as bad as it was back then. Um, it changed the course of, 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 of the Southern Democrats, for God's sakes. They were, the, the South was all Democratic prior to the civil rights and the Vietnam War riots. They flipped after that because they were so outraged at what they saw happening. You know, the people were, you know, revolting against the government because of the war and, and questioning the government and being angry and decided they, they completely flipped and now they're all it's all southern republicans and they're extraordinarily to the right it happened because of the issue the, the incidents that occurred at that time and now we have 
the the advent of disinformation, uh, the advent of the outlets like Fox News and the rest of the, the, the right wing media that that does nothing but chant and preach disinformation, misinformation, um, culture wars, things that that don't even exist, man. And they follow the the, the doctrine of of of, of uh, uh, Hitler's propaganda minister. Goebbels, the rest, it's right down there, but just keep saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, and eventually people will believe it. And that's where we are now. So I gotta tell you, that's, uh, I, 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 hope we can, I hope we can get to a future where, where we can actually, you know, that we're actually, we actually have that, you know, that there's somebody can look back and say, hey, wow, what happened at that point in time? You know, I hope we have that. I really do. I wanna ask you, so you and I could geek out about politics all day because yes. you know where I'm coming from. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to I want to go back. So you mentioned earlier about the culture war. Yeah. And at least in my view, it feels like the backlash to that is the new Southern strategy, right? It, they are coming back at this, trying to wedge people apart based on the level of discomfort that some white people have uh -huh. with the conversation about what direction this country needs to go in. Sure. And I, I want to find out from you, what do you see as the role of storytellers, musicians, writers, actors, and like, like you said, getting us over that hurdle and getting the country back on track? How, how, do, how do we as storytellers make a difference? Oh, a, a huge difference. In the, in the past, you know, uh, the artists, and, and we are all in the field of art, whether it's music or whether it's film, television, or plays, we, the, the debate has always been whether uh, entertainment and art reflect what is happening in society or whether we project what could happen in society. And I think that both of those things apply. We as writers and artists, and we are seeing it now. Again, I mentioned earlier, we're seeing, you know, based on what's happening politically, um, is very different than what we see on television. We can turn the television on and we see how it's changed. We see minorities and these key roles and projects and stories and commercials, interracial marriages and uh, couples and, and the gay theme being it was never talked about when I was growing up and now it's everywhere the artists our responsibility and our job and our you know our contribution to this is that we keep producing we keep showing the images we keep putting those out there because the younger people are going to see those as normal that will be their point of reference they don't have a point of reference from 25 35 40 years ago they have a point of reference from today so what they see in the media what they see in the video games what they see in the on the television commercials and the tv shows and the movies that they are all watching and they're all streaming that's the stuff that that generation my daughter and her kids growing up with a point of reference that's now so if they're being if that's coming on and they're being able to see it that is going to make the difference that's going to make the difference it is very important that we as artists whenever we get a chance to if we have the opportunity to to make a point of of questioning that pointing that out and and and, and wrestling with that um very much um mm -hmm. uh, it's it's it, we are ref not only reflecting what's happening we are talking about what needs to happen and so that that is our responsibility it has always been our responsibility if you watch movies and television shows from the past all the way from the 50s 60s 70s we wrestled with all kinds of issues back then when i was growing up it was nuclear war a lot of stories about nuclear war because the threat of nuclear war was so palpable it was so real it almost happened so there was movies and things uh the strange love uh, fail safe there was about a project that were done that dealt with nuclear war uh we are seeing now what are we seeing now a lot of shows about post-apocalypse dystopia how many shows about that how many movies this where everything is completely destroyed. There's projecting what could possibly happen if we keep on the path that we might be. Could this come to that kind of, those kinds of blows internationally or domestically? We see this, we see these changes that in our film and television has changed and tracked with what has happened and the, the tensions and the pressures in our society. The pandemic brings upon these, you know, this whole shutdown of our whole world over a pandemic brings on all these dystopia stories and these virus stories and all that stuff reflects what's happening so yeah as artists that's our job and our duty i'm running out of time guys i have to get going here i have to get rolling tim again thank you so much really appreciate it my pleasure. Tay, 
Thank you for helping me out as well and co-hosting this with me. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) thank you for going boldly with Beyond Trek podcast. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Tay, and enjoy your music very much. Keep playing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. You take care. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon and Anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S. Tam, Anne-Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of Beyond Trek Podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile. Well, thank you very much for spending the time with us. We oh, yeah. really, really appreciate it. That was that was great of you. There is one thing that I would like to show you, and <laughs> this is, I, I think you're going to like this. Uh, right. This is something that I made, uh, let's see, it's probably about maybe uh, about a year or so ago, and it's a GIF. So uh, here, let me let me put it in the in the Zoom chat. All right, you got the Zoom chat there. Okay. Go ahead and check that out. All right. All right. Let me see here. Okay. There it is. Uh oh. Boy, I'll tell you, I never would have imagined that four words would go on for such a long time in in the uh, cultural pop culture of, 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 of the country. I just, it's stunning. It, yes. It's never ended and it's still there. It's really I got a lot of compliments there. for that gift, so. <laughs>